All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up. We were in Tampa at Soft Week, where we heard from Special Operations Command leaders and spent time talking to companies who are bringing creative solutions to the soft maritime world. In the discussion portion of the show, we will hear from the Navy captain responsible for bringing those solutions to life and a few of the companies who showcased their technology at the four-day show. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. Japan revealed on May 11th that a five-ship Chinese naval flotilla had sailed completely around Japan's main islands from April 30th through May 11th. The formation was led by the Type 55 destroyer Lhasa. Also on May 11th, Chinese President Xi Jinping released a letter he sent to the Chinese Navy's submarine force, urging them to strive to become an elite force as China builds up its navy, now the world's largest. Bahrain-based U.S. Fifth Fleet announced May 12th it is working with regional allies and partners to increase the rotation of ships and aircraft patrolling in and around the Strait of Hormuz. The move comes after Iran recently seized two civilian merchant tankers leaving the Persian Gulf. The U.S. said that Iran has harassed, attacked, or interfered with the navigational rights of 15 internationally flagged merchant vessels over the past two years. And the second pair of Type 54 AP frigates for the Pakistani Navy was delivered from Hudong Zhanghua Shipyard near Shanghai on May 10th. The new Tipu Sultan and Shah Jahan will join two sister ships delivered in 2021 and 2022. Three civilians remain missing after the crash May 10th of a U.S. Navy-contracted Phoenix Air Learjet 35 near San Clemente Island off the Southern California coast. Although an extensive search was made for survivors and a debris field was located, the Coast Guard called off further efforts on May 11th. The Phoenix Air Learjets are used by the Navy for a variety of training missions, including simulating cruise missiles, electronic attack and jamming, and target towing. The destroyer Oscar Austin, DDG-79, is on an unannounced deployment and is taking part in NATO exercise Formidable Shield off Norway. It is the first cruise for the ship in six years. The Oscar Austin suffered major internal damage in November 2018 when a welding fire broke out while the ship was undergoing a major overhaul at BAE Systems in Norfolk. The Navy investigation found numerous errors were made in combating the blaze. Repairs were lengthy and the ship didn't return to service until late in 2022. The U.S. Navy has declared that its Mine Countermeasures Mission Package is now operational. The system intended to be used aboard littoral combat ships and other vessels of opportunity consists of several components, including an unmanned surface vessel carrying mine hunting sonars and airborne systems carried by MH-60 helicopters, all linked together by software aboard the controlling ship. Extensive at-sea testing was carried out aboard USS Cincinnati, the Navy said. The first operational system, however, won't be ready to deploy just yet first deployment aboard ship is expected to take place early in fiscal 2025. 
In new ship news, the commissioning ceremony for destroyer Lena Sutcliffe Higby, DDG-123, will take place May 13th at Key West, Florida. The ship, the last Arleigh Burke-class Flight 2 Alpha destroyer delivered from Ingalls Shipbuilding, will be homeported at San Diego. And the first expeditionary medical ship will be named USNS Bethesda EMS-1. Navy Secretary Del Toro announced May 12th. The ship is a variant of the EPF Expeditionary Fast Transports built by Austell USA in Mobile, Alabama. The Navy is expected to buy at least two EMSs, which are essentially seagoing ambulances rather than full-size hospital ships like the existing Mercy and Comfort. And that's just a look at some of this week's Naval News. All right. During the discussion portion of the show, I wanted to take the opportunity and review the past week that I spent in Tampa at Soft Week. Special Operations Forces Week, or Soft Week, is a national convention dedicated to special operations forces, um, very similar to Sea Air Space or AUSA or AFA. The event started May 8th and ran through May 11th. The conference brought more than 16,000 industry and military members to the city of Tampa over those four days. This event has been hosted in Tampa for more than a decade. This is the first year for the new and improved Soft Week event, which previously was known as SOFIC. Organizers of the event, the Global Soft Foundation, estimate that more than 600 exhibitors took part in this year's Soft Week, including 29 government booths and 32 nonprofit tables. Approximately 35% of exhibitors were made up of small businesses, which we'll talk a little bit about in the, the next couple segments. The soft week agenda included a focus on health, military members, resources for helping active and retired members of the soft community, as well as a review of the big picture global strategy as soft moves from the counterterrorism focus that it's had for the last decades to a combined focus of counterterrorism and global competition. And what caught our attention was the interaction between the soft community and business. And that's what we're going to spend maybe the next 10 minutes or so uh, reviewing. Uh, I had an opportunity to talk to the PEO for Maritime, a Navy captain that is on the SOCOM staff. Um, He laid out what he and the leadership had hoped to get uh, from the interactions with industry. Unlike some of these other conferences where it really tends to be focused on maybe esprit de corps or the larger messaging for the community, um, while there certainly was some of that from the soft leadership side, I mean, this was really an opportunity for the soft leadership at the program executive office level to lay out a number of problems that they had and lay out their requirements and then interact with industry in a speed dating or shark tank-like format um, so that the folks from everywhere from the big primes down to mom and pop businesses had an opportunity to ask questions, to show off their wares, um, and introduce their capabilities uh, into the soft procurement world. Our first interview is with uh, PEO Maritime, Program Executive Officer Maritime on the SOCOM staff, Captain Randy Slab, as I said, a Navy captain, uh, who is there to work with uh, industry partners and um, identify the requirements for the broader soft community. Captain Slab talks about momentum, the ongoing 
push to move back from the desert, from that counterterrorism mission and focus on global competition, getting back to the maritime, getting back to the roots for Navy Soft. So without further ado, uh, here's Captain Slab. So it's maintaining the momentum. So you, you look at soft weeks in the past, you look at what maritime has done in the past with the, with the pivot all the way back to 2018, you know, the return to the maritime domain is you know, for, focused on for NSW. We shifted and then we put a, a, a very strong effort for modernization into the maritime portfolio. The value proposition in the joint environment uh, was widely recognized over the past couple of years, which you know increased our advocacy across our service partners. So we've been very successful in, in, uh, in our modernization effort and we just we're looking to build on that. So you know, we're, we're looking to, to grow the interoperability, the lethality, the expeditionary mobility, um, getting our things deployed and more operationally flexible for the NSW so that we're not restricted to the, you know, the high demand, low density submarine force. Um, the, uh, yeah, so all of those efforts and then you know, the, the top priority, you heard Mr. Smith say a top priority, but it's also top priority in NSW is collaborative autonomy, getting things to work together. It's not just a drone a bunch of drones working together. It's also things that we can do with AI and, and autonomy on manned craft that reduce the cognitive load to the operators so they can be focused on operating and not keeping things stable in the water or, or trying to you know, you know adjust a sensor or you know, do something like that. So, so it's really just keeping the momentum, looking for, for creative solutions, making sure that we can talk to each other. Those are the areas that we are, we are primarily focused on. Well, you heard the captain say creative solutions and walking around uh, the several levels of exhibits at the Tampa Convention Center, you, you saw a lot of that creativity. Um, I'm very disappointed that my partner, Chris Cavus, didn't get to go. Um, he is a guy, as you guys know, that loves stuff, loves to look at stuff, touch stuff. Um, ask questions about stuff and whether it was at the top floor of the convention center where the the big primes were whether it was small businesses whether it was new and emerging technology there was lots of stuff lots of that creative solution kit um, and so in our next three discussions we tried to give you a, a high level prime a mid-level uh, company from the uk that is entering the u.s market and a family-owned three-generation business look at what some of those creative solutions feel like. Our first company discussion is with Talus, a well-known prime company across all domains of joint and combined military operations. Um, we spoke to Brandon Cole, the Director of Business Development for Talus Defense and Security USA. Brandon talked to us about maritime radios that Talus has been working and brought to this year's soft week. Without further ado, let's hear from Brandon. For decades, Talus Defense and Security Comm Systems have been building, you know, 20 meter maritime tactical radios um, utilized across multiple services and federal agencies. Uh, you know, very good at building type 120 meter radios that you can swim and dive and, and come out of the water and be able to communicate. This year here at SOF, we're able to kind of showcase some newer expeditionary communications systems that we've put together, um, one of which was really uh, designed for maritime purposes. So it's a small uh, multi-transport layer expeditionary comm system that gives you coverage uh, for LTE, 
Iridium, so low Earth orbit, and then you have the ability to cross-band multiple tactical radios. And what that does is we designed it so you can operate a closed case, so you can put it on any number of boats, uh, small vessels, so it's, it's very applicable to customer sets like Coast Guard MSRT, for example, or the TACLETs, or port security units, or Navy Marine Corps SOF. And what that allows you to do is have that 24-hour voice and limited data coverage on a boat in the middle of the ocean um, or you know, moving to or from a target. Um, and, uh, and you can operate everything. Everything remotes out of the box in essence. So there's no issues from a maritime perspective of things getting wet and not working. So that system was really designed for a maritime use case. And I'll, I'll be honest, this is really the first year where we, we've been able to take it from a prototype last year to uh, basically a, a Gen 1 product. The next company we talked to was James Fisher Defense, a UK-based company that is partnering with US-based Blue Tide Marine. During soft week, James Fisher Defense and Blue Tide Marine showcased their new tactical diving vehicle, the Shadow Seal. In the next segment, we'll hear from JFD's Alistair Wilson and Jim Emerit as they talk about Shadow Seal and they talk a little bit about time spent at Soft Week and what they hope to get out of it. James Fisher Defense is a uh, division of the James Fisher Group. James Fisher is a 175-year-old UK business on a global scale. Uh, it's on the listed on the UK Stock Exchange. It's got three core divisions, Defense, which is us, uh, Maritime Transport and Energy. Uh, and in JFD, we are very much focused on the underwater maritime defense arena. We've got capability streams in submarine escape and rescue, special operations, submarine platforms. Well, it's commercial. Across those capabilities, we've now set established JFD North America. We're very keen on presenting our capabilities. We feel we have a very relevant portfolio, both with our tactical diving support, combat diving rigs, and MCM rigs. We've been recently bid into the Mamuba Mark 16 replacements. And along with that, the mobility platforms. And I think I should hand over to Jim, who's our uh, subject matter expert in that space. Jim, tell us a little bit about uh, the shadow seal that you have on the floor here at Soft Week. One of our uh, tactical diving vehicles, basically a four-man underwater uh, vessel used for transportation of people and or payload to and from uh, an area of interest. 21st century uh, maritime mobility has really advanced quite a bit because with the uh, emergence of a great power conflict and technologies that have, uh, have developed, you really have to get under the surface of the water to close with the beach. So if you're offshore, beyond line of sight, you're not going to get to dry land without being seen if you're on the surface of the water. So really the only way to navigate that is to get under the surface of the water. And that's where um, our platforms really shine. And so feedback has been very positive. Unfortunately, uh, we've, with very few exceptions, the vast majority of the special operations community for the last 20 to 25 years has been land-centric because of operations in the desert, other places of the world. And so we're kind of experiencing a renaissance of the maritime world. You know, think of what we learned in World War II, the South, uh, Southwest Pacific, uh, but today it's going to be with 21st century technology. So it won't be island watchers with binoculars. It's going to be folks mapping the ocean floor. It's going to be remote, uh, remote sensing. It's going to be uh, com mesh com networks, those sorts of things, and coming from a maritime platform. First two production models of that one uh, will be coming to Fort Lauderdale. So if folks are interested in kicking the tires, taking a ride, we can help them do that. Scenes believing, and so you can see one. 
And if you want to see for yourself what that shadow seal looks like, go to James Fisher Defense and look for the shadow seal or simply Google shadow seal. Um, it's a kind of an odd combination of a, a mini sub, a, a semi-submersible and a go fast. Uh, it actually looks something like you'd see uh, the drug cartel use. I mean, it, it has that kind of tactical, low profile view. Um, really cool. And it really stole the show in the small business pavilion. And speaking of small businesses, our last discussion is with George Woodruff of Raider Outboards. Um, this was a really cool company, uh, third generation uh, engine builder. Um, for somebody like me who grew up uh, on and around the water, um, I've owned a number of boats. I've had outboard engines. You don't really think much uh, can be done to an outboard to make it any more simple or any more effective than uh, you already see. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. In fact, that's why a lot of people choose outboards over inboards. Uh, but in this case, George and his company continue to find ways to um, help special operators and uh, the Navy um, make these uh, engines more reliable capable of being uh, introduced into the tactical environment. So without further ado, uh, here's George of uh, Raider Outboards. This is George Woodruff. I'm president of uh, Raider Outboards. We started the company about 12 years ago, and we deliver outboard motors to the military. Raider is a third generation company. I started it, my son is vice president, and my two grandsons, which are engineers, are gonna be taking it over. Our outboard motors uh, can be released from submarines at 66 feet, can uh, remain underwater for 24 hours, once upon the surface, can start within three minutes. They're airdroppable, which means they can uh, deploy offshore and go in and, and do their missions. They have electric start under the uh, cowling, which makes it very easy. Uh, they're two-stroke engines which means that the, uh, the power per pound is, is amazing, uh, better than four-strokes. Four-stroke engines cannot do the missions that these two-stroke engines do that we manufacture. So we've had the opportunity to show to see our customers, the, the Navy folks have been by. Uh, with the demonstrations we did outside of submersibility, people come inquire about the engines. We've had a lot of foreign people come here talk about the engines and their requirements of their country. So some of the developments we have done over the years, the latest one is a prop. We call a beaching prop. Uh, this prop will not cut, it will, it will bruise. And we've done some, some things to that prop to allow the, the uh, exhaust to be released better, which helps performance. We've also developed a safety jet, which if it replaces the prop, it takes 10 minutes to replace it and everything is internal to it so you can't possibly get cut, which we use for training purposes. So in our development R&D labs, we're building a hybrid engine, which is a fossil fuel on top, electric uh, in the bottom unit, and we're doing that for R&D. We've also got a pure diesel that we're working on too, and we're working on a pure electric, which is nothing more than a, a total electric outboard engine. As I said, I was really struck by um, all the cool things that they're doing with a uh, seemingly straightforward outboard engine. Um, as somebody that has had children uh, swimming in the water, boy, I, I could see the utility of that of that safety prop for anybody that has ever uh, gone uh, wakeboarding or water skiing. Um, 
Look, I mean, the, we wanted to bring you a couple different companies just to give you a sense of the conversations that were going on um, throughout the week and where the maritime business and maritime tactical growth is happening uh, within the soft community. And uh, you certainly see, um, you know, just from hearing from those three companies, um, the type of new technology and new thinking that, um, you know, people are willing to bring forward. There was lots of um, software and AI discussions and lots of software and AI demonstrations that took place through throughout the week. Um, as the captain mentioned, um, anything that they can do to give the special operations community a leg up from a capability standpoint, but also from a thinking standpoint, um, they were interested in having those conversations. The last point I'll make before we wrap this segment up is I was impressed with the venture capital discussions that were occurring um, throughout the week. This is nothing new in the broader defense world. Um, the VC uh, community has been a part of discussions and been a part of startups um, for many years. What was new to me was how closely aligned venture capital and folks that are bringing soft focused technology um, were. Um, and the conclusion I think I came to was is that the risk reward tolerance among the VC community and among special operators is very consistent. Um, both are used to identifying a long range goal, putting resources behind it and making sure that they get to that goal. And so in, in many ways, they speak the same language. Whereas in a more traditional capabilities discussion, that language may not be the same. And that may be where uh, you see some of the problems uh, of VC uh, struggling to uh, to deal with uh, the startup world or the startup world that is backed by VC struggling to present its wares to a more traditional community or a more traditional service. So a great week um, in seeing stuff, a great week in hearing um, what's on the horizon for the soft maritime community, learning about new technology and how it's being implemented. Um, if you haven't been to soft week, I would highly encourage, even if you're not a soft expert, but if you have a maritime interest, if you have a technology interest, this is a great show. It's a great place to visit in Tampa. And, um, you know, they expect to, uh, to be in full swing again next May. A special thank you to the Global Soft Foundation, as well as Clarion Defense uh, and the Special Operations Command um, for uh, their great work. Um, and like I said, get out to uh, Soft Week 2024. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. 50 years after the war ended, Chris Cavus talks about the lingering lessons from Vietnam. Thanks, Chris. And that's right, folks. I'm going to talk about Vietnam. First off, I didn't serve in the Vietnam War, but during the entire conflict, I was growing up and coming of age. I was a foreign service kid. Both my parents worked for the U.S. government. Many of my friends were military kids. At first, everyone I knew supported the war effort. Eventually, the big kids I knew began to go off to war. And of course, some never came home. Gradually, the country turned against the war, seeing no end to it, especially after the January 1968 Tet Offensive, when the ferocity of the conflict really came home to TVs across the country. It was an odd war in that people went, they served their tour, 
and most rotated stateside, but there was no big group coming home as after World War II, when most of our fathers served on active duty. People didn't like the war, didn't want to talk about it. Vets didn't want to brag about it. Quite the opposite. The usual thing we heard was just how F up it all was. The country, of course, was deeply divided around many issues. The war was a big part of it, but it wasn't just that. The civil rights movement was in full swing. Desegregation efforts and racial issues struck society at all levels. The culture war back then was the clear divide between us younger folks, hippie freaks, long hairs, the counterculture, and our parents, the people who fought the big war and didn't quite understand their much hairier rock and roller kids. I remember a Saturday evening in May, 1971. I was in a band. We played a job, but it ended early. My buddy Paul and I drove into DC where the huge May Day anti-war protest rally was taking place. More than 40,000 people were camped out in and around West Potomac Park near the Washington Monument. It was an incredible night, almost like a movie, full of counterculture vignettes, which I'm not going to bore you with here. But one scene always stuck with me. We were sitting near the Washington Monument sometime around midnight. A young army soldier showed up, dressed in his best Class A uniform and carrying a duffel bag. He was just back from Vietnam had flown into the National Airport, took a cab, and came over to see what was happening. People surrounded this soldier. They shook his hand. They clapped him on the back. Girls hugged him. All I heard people say was, welcome back to the world, man. I heard and saw nothing negative, far from it. I know that was not a universal experience. And what you've mostly heard have been stories about vets coming home to very different receptions. Some of that no doubt happened but it was true that most people on all sides really just wanted to forget about it. Well, all that is completely turned around today, especially after 9-11. The phrase, thank you for your service, is often well-meaning and sincere, and at the same time, a cliche. But the roots of the need for that to be said come from the Vietnam experience. This week marks a major welcome home event on the mall in Washington, D.C., literally on the very same grounds where that May Day protest took place. It's also the same ground that many other protests took place, including Resurrection in City in May 1968, another event I clearly remember. But this time, the gathering is an effort to finally give Vietnam vets the welcome home they deserved. The overwhelming majority of them did not volunteer to go, but go they did because their country asked them. In the greater context of things, this week falls far short of what should have happened, but it is an official recognition that in the words of Korean War veteran Howard William Osterkamp, all gave some and some gave all, and we owe you. Thank you all. Well, thank you, Chris. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's LVC Live Virtual Constructive Training Enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.